The CBF Podcast Conversation is presented to you by Fuller Seminary. Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry offers a practice-focused theological education. Learn from Fuller's seasoned scholar practitioners with online classes and apply what you're learning to your own context. Whatever your ministry goals, Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry will help you take the next step in your vocation. For more information, visit fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. That's fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work in renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. We are honored that you join us each week for Conversations That Matter. That's why in 2020, we've tried to pivot to make sure that we are covering the things that need to be talked about, like the plague of racism in America and how the church is responding to the COVID-19 crisis. We're also coming up on our 150th episode, which would not be possible without listeners like you engaging each week in the conversation. Don't forget that you can be a part of supporting the podcast while receiving some great benefits, such as joining an interview with an upcoming guest, books from authors interviewed, and a VIP experience at this summer's General Assembly. We want to thank William Johnson and Cindy Folendor for their monthly support of the podcast. Check out how you can support at cbf.net backslash podcast support. And now, on to our conversation. Today's conversation is brought to you by Youth Theology Network. YTN is your resource for helping high school students understand if God is calling them to ministry. Their new online hub is where you can connect with programs across the country, direct students to programs that meet their needs, read inspiring stories, and find vocational discernment resources. With YTN, you can help students take their next faithful step. For more information, visit youththeologynetwork.org. That's youththeologynetwork.org. Org. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Brian McLaren, a former pastor and now author, speaker, and activist. Brian has penned countless highly regarded works such as A New Kind of Christianity, Everything Must Change, and The Great Spiritual Migration. He has a new book out in January, Faith After Doubt. Brian, thank you for joining the conversation. Happy to be back with you, Andy. Now, uh, when we last uh, touched base with you, uh, had you on the podcast. It was May of 2019. Um, you had just released a children's book, Corey and the Seventh Story, along with uh, your memoir of your trip to the Galapagos Islands. Um, so what's been going on in your life in the last uh, year and a half? <laughs> well, I, I guess uh, I was busy with my normal work of traveling and speaking uh, through the fall. And uh, then up until the second first week of February, and then uh, uh, we started hearing about this strange thing called COVID-19. So uh, I have been hardly, I live on a little tiny island in the Gulf of Mexico, right uh, in Southwest Florida, hardly left the island uh, since, uh, since March. And uh, yeah, my life has slowed down. It's been wonderful. I've been super happy, you know, just to be home. Travel takes a lot out of you. Um, and I thought that that would mean I would be less busy, but I think I've actually been way more busy in large part because I, I, I've been very involved with all of the political cycle with the campaign. I, I, 
was uh, working with an organization called Vote Common Good. And um, so I've been super busy um, enjoying all of that uh, and, uh, and kind of taking a few deep breaths now that the election is behind us, although I think all of us have this feeling that things are still so up in the air and it's probably going to be a long time before we feel any kind of new normal uh, has returned. You know, there's a, there's a, a small twinge of, um, of envy there when you were describing living on a small Island in the Gulf of Mexico, um, you know, love it for you, hate it for all the rest of us that we're not in a very similar <laughs> place. Um, well, well I, I, I have to admit I'm, 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 it's, you know, if you're going to have to be quarantined any place, I'm I'm a very lucky guy. So, <laughs> well, let's uh let's pick up right there. Um, you know, we all know the percentages from 2016. 82 percent of white evangelicals voted for Donald Trump. The question over the last four years would be: Would that number change in 2020? Uh, with even more visible reasons to hold opposition to the sitting president. And there's been some progress. I say that facetiously because the AP uh, just recently released their survey that shows that 81% of white evangelical um, Protestants voters uh, went for Trump this year compared to 18% for uh, Joe Biden. And the Edison exit poll estimates that 76% of white evangelicals voted for Trump versus 24% for Biden. So at the same time, uh, some other polls have showed that, you know, white evangelical population is shrinking drastically, um, something we'll get to in just a bit as we discuss your book. So uh, if you were to give a, a state of, of Christian in America right now, or state of Christianity in America, what would that be? Uh, how would you begin to put into words where we find ourselves four years after uh, many people felt like was an indictment on um, white Christianity? Yeah, well, it's a huge uh, subject, and those are important statistics that you quoted. So maybe the, the first thing I'd say is that uh, we typically think of Christians in different categories, like Roman Catholic, Protestant, and then among Protestants, evangelical, mainline, Pentecostal, whatever. Um, I, I'm starting to think that those old silos, that way of you know slicing the pie, is not very significant. Um, I think a white evangelical Trump supporter and a white Catholic Trump supporter have way more in common than a Catholic or evangelical uh, uh, Christian who, you know, would find Trump morally abhorrent. Um, and, and I think, especially among white Christians, the number one question that's facing the Christian, white Christian community is whether white or Christian is a more definitive term. Um, and I think what, we're, what has been revelatory about 2016 and 2020 is, I, I don't think this was, I, I think there have been many changes for the worst, but I think bigger than that is a revelation that what I grew up with as Christianity was actually white Christianity. And it was a Christianity with a long and deep history that we studiously hid from ourselves. And, um, and so I would say that is the opportunity, that's the work ahead of us to come to terms with that. I think there are obviously all kinds of theological dimensions to it, um, but maybe here's the way I'd say it. You start to realize how much your Christianity was defined by your whiteness and then you have to start saying, what does it even mean to be a Christian anymore if I'm not letting my whiteness define my Christianity? Maybe I'll just give one other quick example. What I'm starting to realize is, as a white person, what I call Orthodox Christianity is Christianity centered in Europe, meaning Christianity centered among white people. And so I'm starting to realize that every time I say the word Orthodox Christianity, I'm really saying white Orthodox Christianity. And I've got to interrogate that, that whiteness or Eurocentrism, uh, whatever you'd like to call it. And that's scary for a whole lot of people. But I know that all of my black and brown Asian friends, Native friends are saying it's about time you guys did that work. So, uh, you know, I'm, uh, it's no secret. I, I'm not, uh, I, I'm the very opposite of a fan of Donald Trump. But 
he has given a gift to us, and that is he's confronted. Uh, well, he's con- he's he's made the whiteness of white Christianity more obvious than ever. Yeah, I mean, certainly has, and and in the last uh, really the four years, the Trump presidency has been a microcosm of so many important conversations around equality and human treatment, or humane treatment of, yes. of immigrants, uh, the Me Too movement, and, and racial justice. You know, at the yes. same time, you know, you you look at the white evangelical church, and and one would think that this is a moment to learn, to grow, to to listen, to be transformed. Are you seeing that among you know mainline white evangelical churches, or does it seem to be a, a common entrenchment, um, I guess, into the status quo? Yeah. So, um, I. I think it, it's it's maybe ninety to ninety nine percent entrenchment or avoidance. Uh, I'm sad to say that, but I think that's that's what I see. Um, uh, and and here's part of the problem: uh, the the average white evangelical comes to church for one hour to maybe two or three hours a week, but they they have Fox News on probably 25 to 40 hours a week in their home. And so you, you could, uh, I jokingly say, but I'm serious too, that, that the Fox News of Rupert Murdoch has way more influence on the average Christian than the good news of Jesus Christ. Um, and, and the naivete, and I know it offends people when I say that, but sometimes when people are so naive about how they are being uh, brainwashed by a political uh, and economic and social message, and they think that their Christianity is fits in just so smoothly with that, and again, I'm you know you, you have to be very, we have to be very careful when we make these comparisons. But there is a comparison that people have to make to say. Yeah, and the German Christians thought everything they were hearing in the 1930s fit perfectly with our Christian faith too. So we're we're this is like a phenomenal opportunity. And maybe the other thing I'd say about this, uh, Andy, is that the other statistic that's really significant is that uh, the the population of evangelicals in 2020. Is several percentage points. The, the percent of, po- of the overall population has gone down several points, uh, even in the last four years. And so I think what has happened is that a whole lot of people, a whole lot of white evangelical Christians who did not support Donald Trump or who maybe did in 2016, but then lost confidence in him afterwards, realized that if they wanted to stop supporting Donald Trump, they had to leave their churches. And so a whole lot of them just don't call themselves evangelical anymore. And that's, that's the larger thing that I think is going to continue to happen. Um, I actually, I, I should say, I think two things are going to happen. I think more and more young people, young white evangelicals, are going to stop being evangelical. Now, some of them will become atheist, agnostic, spiritual, but not religious, or they'll, they'll maybe find another faith community to join. But I think another group of young white evangelicals are going to join the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and some other white supremacist, extre- extremist, white nationalist groups. And I think that these, um, these Southern Baptists and Assembly of God and Pentecostal and independent charismatic and non-denominational churches are going to be surprised when they find out that that Fox News was the was the gateway drug, but then it becomes some pretty extremist stuff. QAnon, of course, is spreading through white churches around the country and other kinds of conspiracy theories. And so I think what we have called evangelicalism is in this mass self-deconstruction. <laughs> it's just fragmenting into a thousand different pieces. And Unfortunately, right at this moment, it may be that Donald Trump holds it together more than certainly Christianity Today or whatever else, you know. 
Well, at the, at the same time, I mean, the last four years have given uh, rise to a lot of new voices that have been protesting yeah. and advocating, uh, whether it be for, for equality or humane treatment of immigrants or Me Too movement or racial justice and so on. Who are the people that you've been learning from? Uh, who are the people that mm-hmm. our listeners should be paying attention to? Well, l- let me mention uh, a couple of super interesting people who identify as evangelical. Um, one of them I would highly recommend people pay attention to is Lisa Sharon Harper, African-American woman, former university staff person, formerly worked with Sojourners Magazine. She now uh, leads an organization called Freedom Road. And Lisa is a dedicated, deeply spiritual, deeply committed uh, evangelical Christian. But because she's African-American and because she's lived in mostly white evangelical spaces, she sees what white evangelicals need to see. And I don't know how she has the patience, uh, but she is dedicated to this work. And I highly, highly recommend people pay attention to her. Austin Channing Brown's another tremendously gifted African-American evangelical who's speaking a message about this. Uh, A a lot of uh, evangelicals will be familiar with Jen Hatmaker, who, um, who in her own family has seen because her family includes white and non-white people, um, she, you know, own, she feels this uh, in her own body, so to speak, and in the body of her family. And she's a person who is speaking out uh, uh, wisely and and compassionately on on these issues. Um, uh, another person that, that I, I wish more evangelicals knew about is a fellow named Mark Charles. A lot of people don't know he. He actually ran for president, uh, uh, but Mark is a Navajo and a committed Christian. And uh, Mark uh, co-authored a book with Sun Chan Ra, another gifted evangelical uh, leader uh, and theologian, um, called Unsettling Truths. And I, the story that Mark tells as a Navajo, uh, uh, you know, American, uh, is a a powerful story that people need to hear. And the theological insight is super, super far reaching. Um, and um, yeah, so those would be a few, but there, there are, you're so right to say that uh, as often is the case when times get darker, lights shine brighter <laughs> and there are some bright, bright lights shining these days. I feel like a straight A student right now in the Brian McLaren class because two of the three that you mentioned we've had on the podcast in the last year. Um, but if you have any connection with Austin Channing Brown, uh, you know she's one that we certainly would love to have on. <laughs> yes, yeah, she's she's just wonderful, and and um, yeah, and and the the thing I would say also is that white evangelicals they need to listen to their black and brown and Asian and native evangelical brothers and sisters. They need to find them. They need to learn from them. Um, You know, they need to buy their books and pay for them. And they need to listen to them on podcasts like this one uh, and, and become students, uh, become their students. Uh, And what they hear will unsettle them. And that's a sign that they're learning what they need to learn because Uh, It is unsettling when you've only seen the world from one perspective for so long, when everybody you know and all the books you read and all the radio programs you listen to all portray the world from the same perspective and have the audacity to call it the Christian worldview and never realizing, no, this is the white American Christian worldview. So it's disturbing, but it is super valuable. And uh, yeah, I I couldn't recommend those kinds of voices highly enough. And it's one of the great things about this podcast and uh, podcasts like this, that in some ways, these are ways that people enter into conversations that they wouldn't hear otherwise. Well, let's jump into uh, the new book you have coming out in January of 2021, uh, Faith After Doubt, Why Your Beliefs Stop Working and What to Do About It. This book invites readers to look reality in the face. The reality is that 65 million adults have dropped out of active church attending, with nearly 3 million more leaving each year. You wrote, some people tell me they never have doubts. Faith comes easy for them, they say. At least it has so far. But many, many, many of us 
do have doubts, and sometimes our doubts seem far more powerful than our beliefs. It's hard enough having doubts. It's impossibly hard to have them and to feel you must pretend that you don't. All your books are, are unique. So what was the impetus for writing this one? Well, this is a book that uh, I, I wanted to write for a really long time, but didn't feel I was ready. And, um, and then finally, it just felt like, okay, this is the one that has to come next. Um, uh, I don't know if you would feel the same way, Andy, but I would say more people in my, my circle of friendship have completely left the faith in the last 10 years than in all the previous years of my life combined. Um, and what's happening is so many people are just worn out by having, by feeling that what they actually think deep in their heart is so different from what they have to say that they think in their church, that they just can't live with that gap anymore. And uh, so they, they have to leave. And, and, um, and I think the truth is, that doubt is not only necessary and inevitable, it, it's, uh, it, it's, uh, it's a matter of survival because I think that we believe so many things that are really harmful to us. And if we want to survive, we have to have the courage to not only question them privately, but to question them publicly so that co critical conversations can come together and we can start to imagine and search for new ways uh, to, to be Christian and to be American and to be white and to be human. I mean, this isn't just a Christian problem. This is a, a human problem. Uh, we have so many things that need a second thought. And if you think of that word second thought and call it a double, about double the amount of thinking, uh, well, that word double is related to the word doubt. To doubt means to have a second thought, to think about it again, and, and we need it desperately. You wrote so beautifully, I know doubts look like dirty dishwater to many people, and I know that canvas bags of dried corn may not seem like much, but what if our doubts are actually like medicine, like nourishment, and we need them, and so does the world? For you, why is doubt a, a portal of faith rather than the enemy of it? Well, I, I would say two things, uh, Andy. First, um, in my experience, uh, uh, doubt is what always drove me on. Um, if I hadn't had doubt, well, I, I think uh, I had a, an experience when I was maybe 12 or 13 years old. I, I started realizing I could tell what the preacher was going to say next. <laughs> well, uh, and sometimes when I write a Christian book, I would know exactly what was going to be said next. And I remember one Sunday thinking, oh, I guess for the rest of my life, I'm not going to learn anything new. I've learned everything that they have to teach me. All I'll do is come to church every week and be able to assess how well the, teach, the, the preacher did in telling me what I already knew. But when doubt came in, it's what made me start questioning some of those things I was always hearing which made me ask deeper questions and then seek deeper. And so I would doubt what I was told that this verse in the Bible means. And then I'd go and read the, the 10 chapters before that verse and the 10 chapters after that verse, and I'd realize something very different was going on there than I had been routinely told. So I've learned so much because of doubt myself, even though I was made to be afraid and ashamed of it. But the second reason uh, I, I, I feel that way is because uh, one of the things I do in the book is I talk about, uh, 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 I give, offer a four-stage uh, framework for understanding human spiritual development. And this is just my attempt to synthesize so much great work that's been done by many theorists, both Christian and uh, just general human developmental theorists. And what I've come to realize is that you um, you can grow within a stage without doubting, but to move from one stage to another requires you to doubt some of the assumptions of your stage. And uh, so th that that understanding of uh, uh, that that development happens through stages 
um, that for me really uh, underlines the, the necessity of the right kind of doubt. This CBF podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health. At the Center, we help lay leaders, clergy, and congregations find ways to thrive in the midst of change. Our experience in highly trained consultants and coaches don't prescribe one-size-fits-all solutions. Instead, we work alongside you and take your unique congregation and ministry context seriously. We believe the wisdom for thriving comes from the leadership of the Spirit. We help create the spaces for congregations to hear and recognize that God-given wisdom. Please visit our website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about the center and find the help you need in order to thrive in ministry. Well, not to give anything away, you know, as you just said, that you propose four stages of faith, simplicity, complexity, perplexity, and harmony. Um, I guess for time's sake, but also so people will go buy the book, can you give us a, a brief snapshot of, of each of these stages? Sure, sure. Well, the, the first thing is I recommend that people don't think of stages as like a line, you know, uh, and you move from right to left or left to right on the line or up, uh, down or up. I, I recommend you think of, of stages like rings on a tree. Um, and so, you know, a, a new sapling tree just has one ring. And then after its first year, it goes through its first winter. It grows the next spring, a new ring, and the next spring, a new ring. And so we have periods of growth and then periods of consolidation and then another period of growth. And, and so the first stage, uh, simplicity, is the stage where we basically learn right and wrong. It, it's the stage where we like to sort things into two bins. Um, us and them, in and out, uh, you know, safe, dangerous, that sort of thing. And, um, and it's really, really an essential stage. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of our churches act as if that's the only stage that Christianity works in. And they try to keep us stuck in that stage. Uh, but I think all of us are ready, you know, to grow beyond that stage, probably by the time we hit puberty. And, and that come, brings us to the second stage, which is uh, the stage of complexity. Complexity shifts the question from dualism to pragmatism. In other words, it, we shift from what's right or wrong, what's in or out, what's safe or dangerous. We think, what are the steps to do, to do something? How many different kinds of something are there? So now we go from seeing the world in terms of two to seeing the world in terms of three and four and 12 and 50. Uh, and the world becomes more complex. And we, we start to learn, oh, there are different disciplines. Biologists look at the world this way, and physicists look at the world this way, and poets look at the world this way, and, and Baptists look at it this way, and Pentecostals look at it this way, and Muslims look at it this way. So we start to see the complexity and multiplicity of the world. A lot of people uh, uh, find it's safe to be a Christian in stage one, and then they find there are also safe places to be a Christian in stage two. I frankly think that the megachurch movement, it represents for a lot of people a move from stage one into some form of stage two faith. Um, very often the sermons at a megachurch are sermons about the three steps to having a good marriage, the five steps to being a good parent, that sort of thing. It's pragmatic and skill-oriented. That attracts a lot of people. Um, stage three is perplexity, and that's when we say, you know what, those easy categories I learned in stage one and those easy steps I learned in stage two, life isn't easy. Those don't fit so well. And, and in some ways, it took a little doubt to go from stage one to stage two, but when we leave stage two, we enter deep, deep doubt about everything. We start saying, how do I know? who to trust? How do I know what's really true? I was wrong about so many things in the past. How can I trust what I know now? How do I live with not knowing? And in some ways, perplexity is the stage where we have to cope with living in a world where everything is not easy and certain. And that prepares us, I think, for what I call harmony. And that's the stage where we actually, we learn, you know what? When I thought that I had certainty, that was just my little simple oversimplification. Uh, life has always been bigger than I could understand. And it, for some people, that means they lose their faith. For other people, it means 
suddenly faith is big enough to cope with all of life. And that's one of the things I'm really hoping people will be able to do. I'll be able to, in some way, help people do as they read this book. You know, as we look at so many people um, leaving the church, it I guess it draws me to ask, you know, is the church putting limitations on people's stages of faith and their faith journey? Yeah, so I think this is one of our huge problems. Um, uh, for for a very, very long time, Protestants and Catholics argued about who had the right set of answers, who had the right set of beliefs. And when you have a 500-year argument about who has the right set of beliefs, without realizing it, you convince yourselves that having the right set of beliefs is the most important thing in the world. And... Um, and when everything depends on being right, it becomes very scary and very dangerous to say, I'm not really sure about that. I don't know. There are four or five different ways to think about that. And I'm comfortable with these three, but not comfortable with those two. Um, and that is the skill of learning to live with uncertainty. And I actually think that the opposite of faith is not doubt. I think the opposite of faith is certainty. And uh, and so this is one of our great challenges and opportunities to help people uh, find spaces to be Christian without being stuck in battles over who has the, the right list of beliefs and who has the right claims to certainty. Um, and, and one way to say it is that um, some denominations uh, only allow you to be in stage one. Uh, and uh, some denominations give you permission to grow into stage two, and some denominations let you go into stage three. But I think it's not just a denominational thing. I think if you have a stage four pastor, that pastor gives you room to be at stage one, two, three, or four. But if you only have a stage one or stage two pastor, they're uncomfortable with anybody who's beyond them. And uh, and they tend to judge what they don't understand. And so th this this is part of our struggle right now uh, in the spiritual formation of pastors and leaders. We have we have gone for the low hanging fruit of who can get the right answers on a test instead of helping people to develop the habits of the heart, the spiritual competencies to um, to live with. Yes, things that are right and wrong. Yes, sets of skills and competencies uh, for living in a complex world. Yes, critical thinking to challenge and question assumptions. And yes, the ability to integrate uh, uh, those first three stages into a bigger fourth stage. There's a fascinating section in the book in which you uh, contemplate our gravitation to groups uh, to belong and our willingness to commandeer those groups' beliefs in order to fit in. You wrote, something in us wants to belong, but something in us also wants to be free, to be authentic, to be honest, most genuine version of ourselves that we can be. Those two desires can be in tension. Talk to us about the polarities um, and how they affect our faith and our identity. So um, uh, let me use uh, my own my own family as an example. I, my uh, granddaughters, uh, two of my granddaughters, are quarantining with us, and um, I we were taking a walk just today, and I wanted to tell them about one of my grandfathers, and uh, I told them he only had an eighth grade education. In fact, he didn't. I don't even think he finished eighth grade, and. Um, uh, uh, they, this was really, really uh, intriguing um, to them. And um, uh, I, I told them that my grandfather, uh, you know, he didn't have good grammar. He didn't read books. He, he, he lived a very, very simple life, but he had a very, very deep love. And I think one of our problems in, in the Christian faith is that we have constrained our ability to love because we become obsessed with policing people's beliefs. 
And uh, here's the irony. If you really read the New Testament, I mean, if you really read the, the four Gospels, and you really read the Apostle Paul, you really read James and John, it is really clear that love is the point of this whole thing. And so how do we get back to letting this very simple and profound reality of love be the big picture that we live into? Um, that's very, very hard if, if we're in a congregation that, uh, that is obsessed week after week after week with policing people's beliefs. And I think that's one of the reasons a whole lot of people are just saying, this doesn't make sense. This doesn't ring true. Uh, I, I have to look for something else. I think I think for many people, there's this just this general feeling of malaise when it comes to faith and religion in America. Um, and you yet you write for something a bit more hopeful. Um, you state in the absence of aliveness and the absence of our faith after doubts that expresses itself in love, people settle for less. They settle for easy answers, the candy coated reality. They settle for measuring all things by money, elevating their religion, race, ideology, and nation to the status of obsolete as if it alone matters. I guess maybe um, paint a hopeful image for us of, of what you think is possible for people to step into their doubt and to live through it. Well, here's the fascinating thing for me. You know, like I don't want people to be stuck in a stage one faith. I, I think our world needs more people to grow up and I, our world needs more people to be mature. I think God wants us all to, to grow toward maturity. I think Paul said in, in 1 Corinthians 13, when I, when I was a child, I spoke and acted like a child. I've grown up. And what has he grown up to see? That love is the most important thing. So I, I really, really believe that. And what breaks my heart is that when a lot of people grow up in Christian groups that, that, that don't allow them to grow, um, they give up on religion entirely. But here's the thing. Jesus' basic call was to invite people to be disciples. Disciples are lifelong learners. And to me, it would be such a small step. Like it's it's right there in our in the in the gospels. It's right there in the essential call of Jesus. Come follow me. Uh, not come memorize this list of beliefs. Follow me. A lifelong following. Um, uh, he he says the Spirit will guide you into all truth. You're not ready for it all right now. But as you're ready, you'll be guided. Everything about that understanding of the Christian life is a life of lifelong growth and learning. And, you know, I'm 64. Uh, I, I feel I have more to learn now. Like every year, I, I realize how much more there is to learn and how little I know compared to what there is to learn. And the joy of that is so great. I would wish that on, on everybody. And I, I don't think there's a great future uh, for religion that doesn't let people grow, that doesn't, that religion that acts like a cage. Um, uh, and I, but I think there is a great future. <laughs> Wouldn't it be, be nice if Christians decided that Jesus was right, that what counts is being disciples, lifelong learners? That picture to me is so exciting. And maybe one other quick example. So my wife, she probably won't appreciate me saying this, but she also is 64. And I look at her, same thing. She can't stop reading. She's listening to a podcast when she takes her walks. She, she's in the same boat. And I just watch how alive she is at 64 to feel there's more and more to learn. And and more to learn about herself, more to learn about life, more to learn about God. And I, I, all I can say is the joy of that is something I'd wish on anybody. One of the brilliant aspects of your book is that you, you call individuals to discover their true selves. You invite readers to listen to themselves. Um, you know, I hate to keep reading quotes, uh, you know, from your book, but uh, these are so fascinating. There's something that waits and listens for the sound of that genuine 
in yourself. And sometimes there is so much traffic going on in your mind, so many different kinds of signals, so many vast impulses floating through your organism that you go back thousands of generations long before you were even a thought in the mind of creation. Um, I guess for those that that have so much clutter, that have looked to the church for so many years for all the answers and guidance on these things. How do you how do you teach people to listen to themselves and listen to the spirit of God within them? Well, you know, someday I hope that this is why people will want to be part of a church because I think churches should be those kind of places. Uh, but in, in the meantime, if a person's church is not that kind of a place, here's what, what people are doing. They're finding podcasts like this one that creates space for them to think. You know, I often think what Martin Luther's 95 theses nailed to a door were for the Protestant Reformation 500 years ago, podcasts are today. Uh, somebody's driving down the road in their car and they're listening to a conversation that gives them permission to dream and to think and to ask questions. Uh, uh, so it's happening there. It's happening at re retreat centers and conferences. Um, I'm involved with something called the Living School, started by a uh, Franciscan uh, a brother named uh, Richard Rohr. And, and the Living School is creating space for people to delve deeply into great treasures in the Christian tradition, um, the, the, the tradition of Christian action and contemplation. Uh, such great resources there. Many of us grew up in the church, never even knew that this was one of the treasures, buried treasures hidden in our backyard. Um, uh, people are finding spiritual directors, um, uh, an ancient Christian tradition where they go and sit with somebody who isn't going to judge them and correct them and tell them what they should think, but is going to ask questions of them and help them uh, listen to that deepest part of themselves. Uh, I remember the first time I went to a trained spiritual director, and and I remember feeling like everybody else I go to has some agenda for me, and this person's only job is to try to help me hear what God is really saying to me. Um, uh, oh my goodness! The, the, so the opportunities are there um, more than any time in my lifetime, I think, uh, and. Uh, so for folks who are discouraged, I would just encourage them. Um, yeah, if you look around a little bit, you're going to find these these resources popping up everywhere. You know, I know we have traditionalists maybe listening to this conversation, maybe even reading your books that just aren't there. Uh, maybe they just don't get it. They don't understand these drastic changes that are happening to the spiritual landscape. They might be feeling despair and uncertainty. Um, what do you say to them? Well, um, first, if people are happy with what they have, I'm not trying to, you know, I'm not trying to upset them. Uh, I think there are probably some people in that category who would just, you know, be wise to say, you know what, Brian McLaren is writing books for people who have problems that I don't have, um, uh, or maybe I don't have yet. Uh, I think, oh, this is probably over eight or 10 years ago, but one of my dear friends, um, his, uh, his parents, I was their friend also. I had great respect for them. And they were uh, in their early 80s at the time. And the husband died. And the wife uh, confided to me, you know, I'm the friend of her son. She confided to me that here she is in her 80s. And for the first time, she's having doubts about whether God even exists because her husband's illness uh, with dementia was so hard to watch. And, and watching this slow and agonizing dying process, it just made her feel like none of my prayers were answered. Nothing I was told worked. And this wonderful dear woman was, you know, I forget what she was, 82, 83 years old, and she's going through her first major period of doubt. But what was so great is, and I felt so honored, is that she felt she had somebody it was safe to tell that to, you know. And, and that's one of the things that we really need. Uh, as the quote you read earlier, 
to, to doubt is hard, but to have to keep it a secret is, is too hard. And so we all need at least one person we can go to when the doubts arise where we know it's safe. But again, for people who what they think now is working and it just makes them mad to hear about anything else, I just don't want to bother them. Except maybe this. If they think, what about your children who've left the church and left Christianity? What about your grandchildren who want nothing to do with, with talk of God and faith and Jesus and all the rest? If you care about them, then maybe for their sake, you should actually take this issue of doubt a little more seriously. In fact, Andy, maybe I could just tell you a quick anecdote that just comes to mind. Years ago, I was at some big conference, obviously before quarantine, when uh, we still went to big conferences. And uh, uh, this guy came, was standing out in the hallway, and uh, he was introduced to me. And he was kind of a famous guy because he was the editor of a well-known Christian magazine. And he shakes my hand and says, oh, McLaren. He says, yeah, I've read a couple of your books. I really don't agree with you. I really don't like you. I'm on the other side of almost every issue that you're on that you write about, he said. But listen, he said, my kids, they're far from the church and far from God. He said, and if they ever do come back to faith, it will be because of people like you and not because of me, <laughs> he said. <laughs> and so he said, so I wish you well. Um, and, and I thought, well, you know, that I, I that's good because not everybody, we're not all going to agree about, you know, all of these things. But maybe an empathy for the people for whom traditional faith isn't working, people will at least have curiosity about what might help other folks. Wow. I, I mean, <laughs> what a high praise, but also at the same time, maybe a, a, a moment of self-reflection to say, Maybe I should check in with my kids with a with a psychiatrist to understand how I, how I've pushed them out of faith uh, such a way. Um, what's your hope for the book? Well, uh, my hope is that people will read it and ask the kind of intelligent questions you're asking, Andy. I mean, really, uh, uh, and I, I suppose one simple hope is that people will not feel alone. They'll know this is having questions and doubts is nothing to be ashamed of. It, 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 it's, it's part of life. It's part of growth. Uh, you know, wh when Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard it said, but I say to you, what he was doing is giving people permission to doubt things they'd always been told. And, and, I think that's a sign of the presence of Christ when people are having second thoughts. Another word for second thoughts is repentance. It means thinking again. And uh, that's part of, part of the, the Christian life. So I hope it will bring people encouragement and help. And I hope that people will say uh, this stage four faith, this idea of, of a faith that makes room for people's uh, full life experience, what will that faith look like? What will, how can we build more churches that, that have room for people at all the different stages? Uh, if, if that kind of conversation comes out of this, this book, I will be so happy, so happy. All right, last question. Uh, in the book, you spoke several times about nearing retirement. Um, how do I put this? Uh, how dare you? You have so much more for all of us to read. So what is this about retirement? Well, um, I, you know, obviously, I, as I said a few minutes ago, I just feel like I'm, I, I'm learning so much. And because I'm so fortunate to be able to learn and then write about it, I've got enough to keep me going. I hope I live long enough to do all the things that I, I feel I, I want to do. Um, but the, 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 there, the other side of this is that uh, because of what I believe because, uh, about how, uh, well, I, I, I want to be sure that there's room for the people of your generation and the next generation. And uh, one of the things I'm aware of is how especially older white men can suck up all the air in a room and uh, take up too much space. So one of the things that I find very exciting 
as I get older is the thought of trying to be behind the scenes a little more and being of encouragement to um, to younger uh, leaders who are coming coming along. So when I talk about retirement, it's not so much saying I want to be lazy. I you know, uh, I, I I that's just not the kind of person I am. But the idea of getting uh, behind the scenes and being of help to people like you and and younger generations growing up that's that becomes more and more meaningful to me. Okay. All right. That's an acceptable answer. But uh, what, I, what I was reading there, I was not liking. Uh, so thank you for thank you for bringing that word of hope to all of us. Well, for those that want to stay connected with Brian, of course, you can follow him on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, visit brianmclaren.net. Uh, go out and purchase Faith After Doubt, wherever books are sold in January. Brian, thank you for making time to uh, have this conversation. And um, I'm personally grateful for your willingness to identify the God-given space in our lives, to question our assumptions, and the freedom to belong in God's love within our doubt. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be in conversation with you, my friend. Today's conversation is brought to you by Youth Theology Network. YTN is your resource for helping high school students understand if God is calling them to ministry. Their new online hub is where you can connect with programs across the country, direct students to programs that meet their needs, read inspiring stories, and find vocational discernment resources. With YTN, you can help students take their next faithful step. For more information, visit youththeologynetwork.org. That's youththeologynetwork.org. Well, that's it. That's our conversation. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites at fuller.edu and healthychurch.org. Check out cbf.net for information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, chaplains, and much more. Oh, and uh, one more thing I don't think we've mentioned on the podcast before, but visit cbf.net backslash podcast support for ways that you can contribute to the CBF podcast conversations and get some pretty cool stuff in return.